Well, the virus has now killed more than 100 people in China, and new cases have been confirmed around the world. So you don't want to frighten the American public. France and South Korea have also got evacuation plans. Which you need to prepare for and assume. Strongly warning Americans to avoid all non-essential travel to China. That this is going to be a real serious problem. France, Australia, Canada, the US, Singapore, Cambodia, Vietnam, the list goes on. Health officials are investigating more than 100 possible cases in the US. Germany, a man has uh, contracted the virus. The epidemic is a demon. Let this demon hide. Japan, where a bus driver uh, contracted the virus. Coronavirus has killed more than 100 people there and infected more than 4,500. We have to prepare for the worst, always, because if you don't and the worst happens. War Room Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. We must strictly and fully enforce our law and have no tolerance for anarchy and no tolerance zero for violence. Anyone who breaks the law should be arrested, prosecuted, and punished. This includes targeting law enforcement efforts to focus on Antifa, the left-wing domestic terror organization. The mission of Antifa is to spread terror in the U.S. population with the goal of getting Americans to give up to their agenda. This is how terrorist organizations have always operated. That's not the easy path. That's a very dangerous path. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist organization. You remember pigs in a blanket, fry them like bacon. That was the first time I ever heard of Black Lives Matter. I said, that's a terrible name. It's so discriminatory. It's bad for black people. It's bad for everybody. And all of a sudden it becomes like sort of, although now if you look, it's going way down because people are tired of this stuff, what's going on, the Black Lives Matter. If you look at what's going on with the bats and the there are a lot of thugs running through thug dc leader. last night oh it's terrible what's going on why haven't we seen the leaders of antifa and blm arrested and charged for conspiracy under say rico like the heads of the mafia families were well this is something i've talked to the ag personally about uh, and i know that they are working on it look we've seen about 300 arrests across this country regarding civil unrest um, and and protesting violent protesting i would say criminal protesting criminal rioting occur about 300 arrests about a third of those or a hundred of those arrests have been in portland specifically and i know the department of justice has charged about 74 or 75 individuals there in portland with different federal crimes and we'll continue to see how those investigations are going department of justice is also targeting and investigating the head of these organizations, the individuals that are paying for these individuals to move across the country. What we know, Tucker, is that we have seen groups and individuals move from Portland to other parts of the country. Right. We had about 175 arrests in Kenosha. Almost 100 of them uh, were from out of state. Uh, so we know they're moving around. We've seen them in, in D.C., in Sacramento, and elsewhere. They're organized. Uh, we've seen similar tactics being used from Portland and other cities across the country as well. So we know that there's organization. I know the Department of Justice is also looking at that as well. Why haven't we seen the leaders of Antifa and B? Okay, welcome to the uh, War Room Live from the nation's capitals. Tuesday, the 1st of September, Year of the Lord 2020. You're in episode 363. We're on the Radio Network, America's Voice on Newsmax TV. Chris Ruddy's organization now in 70 million homes. I think 14 million homes with uh, America's Voice. Also, subtitled in Mandarin later in the day on G News and GTV. And... On our podcast, approaching 13.5 million downloads. So we're one of the largest shows in podcast land, and we're ubiquitous everywhere else on Facebook, uh, Pluto, Roku. Um, 
want to get to it. We've got a old hand you can see for those watching uh, on television right now. Uh, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, uh, adjunct professor over at George Washington. From the early days of the show, author of Three Seconds to Midnight that knows everything about pandemics, one of the smartest guys in the country, a former fellow at Oxford University at Fort Detrick and uh, NIH. He, he will be here for the entire hour, but really joining us in the second half to go through hydroxychloroquine, all the latest on vaccines, everything about where this pandemic starts. And we know He's an audience favorite from uh, the first week of the show when he started t- talking about all the technicalities. I want to bring in now, though, we got to get to the politics. Remember, this show is about a pandemic that triggered an economic crisis, that triggered a capital markets crisis, that now has a geopolitical confrontation between the Chinese Communist Party and the Alliance of Liberty. We're going to get to all that today. I want to bring in now a very special guest, Chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, uh, Ralph Reed, not only one of the leaders of the evangelical Christian movement in our country, but one of the smartest political strategists around, Raheem Ghassam, Jack Maxey, uh, in studio today. Uh, Ralph, thank you very much for joining us on um, War Room Pandemic today. You are, you know, the president's going to leave here shortly and head to Kenosha. Uh, you saw from those initial clips, you know, and I think we got Biden, we can get later in the show, you got this thing's now getting down to the bid and the ask on safety and law and order versus what the Democrats uh, represent. H- how do you, you're one of the smartest guys out there about the politics of it all, but, but but pull back the camera for a second about the country. Where do you think we are right now with this anarchy and clearly this kind of cultural Marxism that seeped into this uh, protest movement? Yeah, I, I look, I, Steve, I think that political strategists and campaigns are a little bit like generals who refight the last war. And you know this better than anybody because you were at the helm in 2016 um, at the uh, Trump campaign that in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, other states as well, it was a national phenomenon. But because of the closeness of the margin in those states, an African-American turnout that was well below the 2012 baseline, Democrats believed was responsible for them losing the upper middle. You know, we could debate whether that's true or not. For example, in Wisconsin, Trump got about the same number of votes that Romney did four years earlier. Yep. You know, give or take a couple of thousand votes. Yep. Romney lost Wisconsin by a million votes. Trump won it there were 47,000 fewer African-American votes cast in Milwaukee alone compared to the 2012 baseline. So the strategy by the Biden campaign from day one was to energize and turn out that vote. It was behind the Clyburn endorsement. It was behind the initial video in which he lied about what the president said. During Charlottesville, it was behind the election of Kamala Harris, and it was behind him doubling down on the left-wing anarchist agenda of BLM and others. Because he felt that if he fixed that problem, then he had one fix for the Oval Office. problem with that, Steve, is that in politics, there's a Newtonian law of every action generating an or greater reaction. And when he was thunderously silent about the violence, the looting, the riot, the extreme Marxism, the anarchism, 
the destruction, Steve, of African-American-owned businesses in these cities and the defunding police agenda, which was a corollary to that, which Biden expressed support for on multiple occasions, what happened then is lots of law-abiding, God-fearing, patriotic Americans of all colors and all ethnicities went, if that's what he's offering as the alternative, count me out. And once the president and his campaign laid down a strong marker on this, uh, he began to see movement. Biden is now bleeding. And that's why you see him finally coming out of the basement. That's kind of a long answer, but that's what I think no, it's great. has happened. Um, let's go to, uh, they had an entire week. They had they made the first part of the case, right? The prosecution's case, and then the president comes in for the defense, as traditional in our, uh, in our system. Those four days, encapped by his, uh, his speech, this is Biden's speech, do you think what did you think the Democrats were trying to accomplish and what do you think they actually accomplished when they had four straight days to be able to address and talk to the American people? You know, I, I think it was of a piece of what I was just talking about. Um, I think that they overplayed their hand with regard to addressing issues of social justice and racial discrimination and all of us opposed discrimination based on all of us oppose those few that uh, a significant minority of cops that are engaged in inappropriate behavior or brutality or treatment of offense. The president's made that abundantly clear. But they didn't just go there. They talked about restructuring the economy, restructuring society, uh, $4 trillion in new taxes, Green New Deal, all this designed to energize the left and I think uh, most glaringly, in a in a act of political malpractice that is on the level of putting Michael Dukakis in the tank in '88, or having Mondale in '84 say, "Whoever people voted for, we're going to raise their taxes." Who won't tell you? I just did. Joe Biden never, in four days, not a single speaker condemned the bankrupting of Martin Luther King's dream of racial equality and reconciliation by advocating violence. Martin Luther King was never for violence. He was never for rioting. He called it, and I quote, the language of the herd. It violated his Christian faith. It violated his philosophy of nonviolent resistance. And it violated his understanding of the civility and brotherhood and sisterhood of the American experiment. And by having four days and never once covering a line about that, and only so belatedly after the Trump campaign and the Republican National Convention repeatedly hammered him, Biden has shown his true priority, his true color, and is the only way can get away with that is if the Trump campaign were to let him. And I just don't see that happening. I want to go to, before we go to break, we got about uh, two minutes. I want to get your response to the president's comments that 
you know, elements of Black Lives Matter is uh, is Marxist, that Antifa is a domestic terrorist organization. We have said on the show now for, I think, Raheem, since this started two or three months ago, that this is like the Cultural Revolution. This is just exactly like the Red Guard in the Mao's uh, Red Guard Cultural Revolution, like the French Revolution. Uh, what say you, Ralph? Well, I, I can only speak for my organization, Faith and Freedom, and we have said that we do believe that Black Lives Matter but we believe all African-American lives matter. That means school choice. It means ending the genocide of abortion, which disproportionately takes the lives of innocent black children. Uh, we believe it involves economic opportunity, like the opportunity zone. We do not support and do not count the radical anti-family agenda of BLM. It's anti-free market. It's anti-family. It calls for the destruction of the nuclear family. And you know that our organization strongly supports the nuclear family as the most successful department of human resources ever devised. So we're opposed to all those things, and I think the president was very right uh, to point out what the true philosophy is. Real quickly, what about the uh, Secretary Wolf talking about uh – using the RICO statue and others to start to round up the Antifa anarchists. What, what, uh, what's your guys' position on that? Well, I think he said in the, in the soundbite he played, and this has been pointed out by others, that it appears that the overwhelming majority of people who are being arrested in these areas of civil discord and rioting are moving around the country. We ought to know who's paying for it. We ought to know who's behind it. And this is a criminal enterprise. And I'm the, I'm the prosecutor, so I'll defer to DOJ what the strategy is. But I don't know why you couldn't use the RICO statute. You're using the wires, and you're using um, network in order to a criminal enterprise. Exactly what that statute is there for. Uh, Ralph, we'd appreciate if you hung on for the next. Uh, we want to talk about the tactics and the practicality. You're one of the best ground game guys in the country. So we want to return with Ralph Reed, the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Uh, hashtag War Room Pandemic. I understand that it was a little choppy, but I want to get all the feedback. Hashtag War Room Pandemic. If you're in the live stream, want to hear what you have to say. We got Dr. Stephen Hatfield here at the bottom of the hour. He's going to be walking through all of his detailed analysis of everything dealing with the pandemic side of this. He's one of the top uh, top authorities in the country, the author of Three Seconds to Midnight, and just absolutely brain got the show off to a big bang back in January and early February before he went on assignment. So, so glad to see him back here. Uh, Raheem Kassam, Jack Maxey. Uh, make sure, hashtag war and pandemic. Uh, Jack, what have we got? People lighting this thing up already? People are loving it, yeah. yeah. We're right. on it. We're so thankful for our audience who constantly give us great ideas to pursue. And we're going to come back and talk about Ralph Reed, about how this vote's actually going to go down technically, how people are going to get out, how do you got to get motivated to get your friends out. Raheem Kassam, Jack Maxey, T. Bennett, back in a moment. War Room. Pandemic with Stephen K. Bannon. The epidemic is a demon, and we cannot let this demon hide. War Room. Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. Donald Trump has been a toxic presence in our nation for four years, poisoning how we talk to one another, poisoning how we treat one another, poisoning the values this nation has always held dear poisoning our very democracy. Now, 
is just a little over 60 days. We have a decision to make. Will we rid ourselves of this toxin? Or will we make a permanent part? We make it a permanent part of our nation's character. Okay, I don't know if this is the most important election uh, in our lifetime, but I'm going to tell you one thing. It's going to be the nastiest. Um, This is going to be nastier than 1860. Uh, here you have a guy running for president of the United States. He's not talking about his opponent's policies. He's not saying he's toxic. They also, Hillary Clinton last week said, we're never going to uh, concede, right? He shouldn't concede. Big news coming out of, uh, is it Axios, uh, Raheem Kassam? Yeah. yeah, that's right. Axios has this exclusive up right now from a group called Hawkfish. Hawkfish being a uh, top Democratic data and analytics firm. They gave Axios uh, on HBO an interview and said it was highly likely that President Trump will appear to have won big, potentially in a landslide on election night, even if he ultimately loses when all votes are counted. And they go into explain why this is. They talk about the vote by mail, uh, the weeks to count these uh, uh, up. And it actually goes back to what Nigel Farage told me uh, in one of our first national poll shows yeah. over a week ago, he said the early mail-in voting is a yeah. dark cloud on the horizon for no, this no, U.S. No, election. No, this goes to Podesta's. This thing you guys broke on, on Daily Mail about the on, on, uh, National Pulse about the Podesta operation and this uh, the uh, war game they're running. We're going to get to all that uh, a little later in the show. I want to go back now to Ralph Reed. So, Ralph, uh, back to the practicality of this. First off, Ralph, have you ever seen a more... Um, a tougher, nastier environment than we have right now in, in politics, and particularly as we hurtle towards the run-up uh, to the 2020 election. Where do you think we stand as a society and a culture, given the the uh, the, the, the heat and the nastiness, particularly what the Democrats are coming out with, about what they're saying about President Trump? Uh, I think... I think in my lifetime, see, the only analog that I can come up with is 1968. Uh, you know, when you had the riots in Chicago, you had the Vietnam War going on. You had a very close election that was ultimately decided by a half a million votes out of 68 million cast. But there's been nothing on that level. And I think it, it, it is almost a given at this point that Biden and his allies say and do whatever is necessary uh, to win this election. They'll uh, destroy uh, any character. They'll smear any reputation. Uh, They'll tell it why. There's nothing that they're not going to do. And I think our side needs to understand that that's the environment we're in. We need to be prepared through our communications and rapid response capability to make sure that those lies don't be unanswered. We need to not make the mistake of thinking that people will not believe things that are not true if they're not answered. And if we don't get the truth out about this president's record and his plans for the next four years, uh, they will believe it. So we've got a big job to do in the next 62 days. And I think if we do it, uh, I think the president will be reelected. How do you actually get the what are you guys doing? Because you're, I think, one of the best around the practicality of it. How we are, this is going to be a, um, a, you know, bring out your side election, right? A base plus election for both sides. How are you going to, what are you recommending and how are you going to get out the vote? How are we going to get every potential Trump voter uh, out there to get, actually own their vote either through mail-in or get to the polls? How, what, what, what are you guys working on at the Faith and Family, uh, Faith and Freedom Coalition? 
Well, uh, in 2016, Steve, we knocked on uh, one million doors in about uh, 18 states. Uh, we, through this week, uh, will have reached a million faith-based voters at their doors as we did by Election Day four years ago. Wow. Uh, our effort this cycle will be three to four times the size of what we did in 2016. Uh, in addition to that, we've had the advent of SMS texting capability. Uh, about 60% of the voters that we're seeking to contact, we have their mobile phone. 75% of them are on Facebook or other social media platforms. And, Steve, I'm just a big believer that uh, campaigns kind of lost their way at the peak of the television era thinking that you could win elections and move public opinion by just putting up a 30-second TV ad. You know, clearly in this day of five, six, seven, eight billion dollar presidential elections, uh, that's no longer the case. There are now so many ads up already, Steve, in these battleground states, that by the time you get to early October, voters are just going to tune it out. Uh, they will have seen thousands of these ads. The way you win elections today is the same way you won them before the advent of the Internet, television, or radio. It's person-to-person. -person, it's face-to-face. -face, it's door-to-door. -door. Uh, if we do our job on the ground, uh, we'll turn out a record number of faith-based and conservative voters. And by the way, I just want to add to you parenthetically, we are not neglecting minority communities or neighborhoods at all. I've had 40 paid staffers in key states going to Hispanic apartment complexes and neighborhoods. We're doing the same in African-American neighborhoods in key states. And you know what? When you ask for people's support, you get it. And I, I, I'm not in the prediction business, but the polling indicates that the president's going to overperform among both blacks and Hispanics, and I think he will. What is your when you your boots on the ground? What do they tell you about the um, the heat out there? Are, are people responding to the Trump message? I mean, they feel that people are energized because we went through a period of time earlier this summer or during the, the, the beginning of this pandemic when people were quite listless. Where, where do you think what is your staff that's out there? What do they tell you? Where are we now? Uh, we're in a great place. First of all, in spite of the pandemic, we've had no problem staffing us. Uh, we have about a 1,000 staff on the ground right now, uh, which is about two-thirds as many as the National Party has. There's no precedent for that in modern political history. Um, and we've still got 62 days to go. We're still staffing up in some of these days. At the door, people are enthusiastic. Some are reticent to participate in a survey because of COVID. Uh, but they're there. They're thanking us for the literature. And the other thing that I will tell you is that the intensity is off the charts. Uh, 92 to 95% of them tell us they're planning on voting. We're obviously going to be following up with them with absentee and early voting where that's relevant. The other thing that I can tell you without getting into specific numbers, which are proprietary, that is encouraging to me. I'm not an expert on this. But the number one issue 
that we're encountering in these door-to-door encounters, Steve, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of them in key states, is the economy. And it's not even close. They say the most important issue facing them is getting this economy back to where it was pre-COVID, creating jobs, and restoring American economic greatness. And I think that that is an issue that works to Donald Trump's strength. Uh, Ralph, last thing, we've got a couple, about two minutes left. Um, our audience is a big, you know, deplorable activist audience. For a call to action, how can people out there help you? How can they get more engaged? How they can they get more involved? Where should they go? What should they look at? What should they log on to? Uh, they should go to FF Coalition. FF is in Safe and Freedom. FFCoalition.com. Uh, sign up. Uh, we've got our Road to Majority Policy Conference on September 30th through October 2nd in Atlanta. Uh, we're going to have a huge crowd there. I can't speak for the president or vice president, but they've each come five or six times in the past, and they are invited. If people want to help contact voters by going door-to-door or making phone calls, we have door-to-door operations and phone banks operating in 21 states right now. They can either look up their state, uh, faith and freedom organization by Googling it or look for searching for it. Uh, or they can contact us at ffcoalition.com, and we'll put them in touch uh, with the uh, the right field teams in the right state. Uh, Ralph Reed, uh, the chairman of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. So the conference this year is down in Atlanta, not in Washington. How do people, can people still get tickets? Can people, our audience, still participate online? Tell us about the conference quickly. Yeah, Road to Majority is our annual policy conference. Uh, In the past, we've had the president, the vice president, multiple cabinet officials, uh, key conservative and faith leaders, and some of our best fighters in the House and the Senate. Uh, I really encourage people to go to our website, ffcoalition.com. We had to move it out of D.C. just because it was very difficult to work with city authorities on having this event. Uh, But we're going to operate within all the appropriate public health protocols, but we're going to have a big crowd. And I think it's going to give us a big surge. And I will also tell you, Steve, that on uh, at least one or two of those days, we're going to have buses lined up in front of the hotels. And during breaks in the program, we're going to take people to key neighborhoods in the Atlanta suburbs to knock on doors. We have two of the top uh, five or six Senate races in the country here, and we're in play in the presidential race. And we have two of the top 20 congressional races in the country. So we're all about ground game. We're going to use this conference as a springboard to have the most effective ground game, the most effective get-out-the-vote effort directed at voters of faith in modern American political history. Ralph Reed, you're an American uh, hero and a great patriot. I want to thank you for joining us today uh, to give us an update on, the, uh, on your perspective and the activities of the Faith and Freedom Coalition. Thank you, sir. Okay, we're going to come back in a second, Dr. Stephen Halffeld, but we're going to summarize uh, Ralph Reed's visit next. War Room Pandemic with Stephen K. Bannon. The epidemic is a demon, and we cannot let this demon hide. War Room Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. I tell you what, of those that go out to vote on November the 3rd, Trump will win the majority of votes in the Electoral College. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt about it. Why? 
because the Trump base are still very highly motivated. And if you look at Biden, right, and there's a truth here that Obama won't admit, uh, you know, that, that Clinton won't admit, that none of them will admit. The truth is Biden isn't up to it. He's past it. He's, he's what in English terms I would call a duffer. He's not up to scratch. He's not fit for high office. Everyone knows it, but no one dares say it. But the voters, when you ask people who are declared and say they'll vote Biden, when you ask them why, over half of them say, because I don't like the other bloke. That means enthusiasm levels for Biden are very, very low. And that means on polling day, people who support Trump will go and vote. People who support Biden just won't go out and do so in the same numbers. So on the day, he'll win the vote. My worry, and you've just touched on it, my worry is this early mail-in voting. I've seen postal voting, the British equivalent of this, abused wholesale in the United Kingdom to the advantage of the left. And, you know, the worst scenario of all is we get, you know, on the morning of the 4th of November, you know, Trump looks like the winner. And then over the course of the next 10 days, all these mail-in votes are counted and the result gets reversed. And Trump is quite right to raise a flag and to say this is not how elections should be conducted because they're open to abuse. So, yes, I think he'll win. But to me, the early mail-in voting is potentially quite a dark cloud on the horizon. And we have the Bloomberg, uh, what is it, uh, Hawkfish? Yeah, uh, they're the most sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated. They're putting this out there right now, right? Uh, but Bloomberg would not allow those guys to talk unless they're given that they're telling the Democrats, hey, once you be all over this mail-in vote, there's a what happened in a, you just had a breaking thing well, in a, Georgia. A judge in Atlanta, Georgia, has declared that sh- every single ballot that arrives and gets post stamped by the date of the election not arrives post stamped post stamped yeah well yeah. put you know gets to the post office right. and gets stamped with the date of the election all of those ballots will be counted so we know that you're not going to get results for Georgia on election night. And that was that was 12 days ago when I interviewed Nigel about that particular issue. And I do think that them releasing this kind of information now, the Hawkfish team, uh, which is funded by Michael Bloomberg, does work for the Democratic National Enormously Committee. sophisticated data operation. Very, very sophisticated operation, this Democratic data and analytics firm. They're coming out and they're saying that it may look like Trump wins in a potential landslide on election night. And then weeks later, it will emerge that he hadn't won. We've talked about this on the show before, and Nigel talked about it on the National Pulse two weeks ago. And I think it's intentional that they're leaking this story out now because they know we know, and they now have to get ahead of it. Um, very dangerous stuff, right? This is why we're going to have try to get Bill McGinley back on, Vish. Let's get McGinley and, and Jim Schultz and these guys on tomorrow. We got to talk about owning your vote. This is why everybody in the audience, right? This is an action-oriented show. That's what we call the war room. It's not to just sit there and think about the theories of this and what the inside baseball is and what people think about it. Action, action, action. The action you have to take, McGinley had two things, and we've already had a number of audience members come back to us. Don't be a poll watcher. Go sign up to be an election official. Get in the room. Get in the room, not where they're watching the polls, but where the ballots are counted. Okay, you need to sign up to be an election official. Number two, uh, you need to go to places like FF Coalition, Faith and Freedom Coalition. I'm not telling you you've got to choose them and sign up, but there are a, a couple of three very prominent uh, get-out-the-vote operations, right? We will have these, try to have one on every day. 
Ralph Reed is a serious player. The door knocking they're doing, the phone banks they're doing, you must turn out everybody you know, right? You've got, and first off, get them registered to vote right now. If you got people out there and not registered to vote, uh, get registered to vote now and turn your vote out. Bill McGinley says you got to own your vote if you're going to do mail-in or whatever. But this is, and and the rules and regulations are still very up in the air. They're kind of, you know, very, but we can't, we got to get past that. You got to know what the rules and regulations are for you. You got to own it. You got to make sure your friends own it, the other supporters uh, own it. And you just saw a judge just saying, hey, you know, right now it's, um, it's uh, as of, it's marked by, I guess, midnight of the, uh, of, uh, of voting day. And the way the U.S. mail works, when does that come in? Three days later, four days later? This is going to be, we're going to be on, like I said, in this election, November 3rd is the, not election day. It's the last day of the election. And that's when, you know, if, if at 10 o'clock at night on um, election night, President Trump is ahead and Podesta and those guys kick into their, you know, they're, they're telling people, just get us past midnight without AP declaring this guy the winner, right, with enough uh, things out there. And we'll, 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 we'll kick into this. And that's not conspiracy theory. The New York Times reported that, right? They've been very clear about it everywhere. The breadcrumbs have been laid here for everyone to see, and I can't understand why people aren't firing off bigger warnings over this. Apart from here in the war room and on the National Pulse, it's very clear, this pattern that they're leaving of, hey, we're going to found this transition integrity project. This is backed by uh, the Soros Open Society Institutes and the Bagruan Institute linked with the Chinese Communist Party. These two groups held this uh, war game. In the war game, John Podesta played Biden. As Biden, he refused to concede. We now hear where did, about we, where did we hear that from? Hillary Clinton. From Hillary. No, well, Hillary Clinton came out a week later yeah. and said, oh, this is my suggestion, as if she's totally removed from Podesta and this whole project and everything that went down there. That's very clear. And I don't understand why somebody has to put the question to the Associated Press as well and say, do you commit right now to making a call immediately after the election to find out who wins? Because my fear is they opt out of making a call entirely. Well, the other thing that I think people are missing here, too, I find it very odd that we're going to have this mail-in voting. And in the midst of it, the letter carriers union comes out in total support of Biden. I mean, could you imagine this was the 1968 election and we get the Teamsters to count the ballots or make sure they get delivered in a timely fashion? This is open season on fraud here. OK, let's now turn. We're going to get back to all this uh, in the next hour. But let's now turn to um <coughs> Pandemic, the thing that started this show, and uh, it's really what's caused it's caused the the mail in ballot situation, uh, etc. Now we're going to bring in Dr. Stephen Hatfield, Jack Maxey. I know we got a ton of topics we want to go through. Why don't we why don't we start to rip on welcoming back into the war room in his rightful place? I think he was actually sat next to me at the. Uh, this is when Jack did. Jack. I think you were still actually you and Mans no, was, were actually was, in the war room. You and me did the start of the thing. Okay, and fine. Hatfield sat there. Yeah. Then we got then we got uh, then um, uh, Miller came back. Oh, then th- that's when we rolled up the uh, 2020 show into into this. Took the uh, geniuses of Raheem Gassam and Jason Miller got them into the pandemic. Dr. Hatfield, when we first started this, you'd written the book. It just came out. Your book came out, I think, in the fall of 2019. And uh, very prescient, right? You did the history of the pandemics, three seconds to midnight. But you were a warning about biological warfare. We've had uh, Dr. Yan, defectors, you know, people uh, saying that this is man-enhanced, that this did not, you know, you got a lot of people said, hey, it just came out of a bad cave. Other people saying, no, it couldn't possibly happen. As you look back over, the, the, the nine months we've had this right now, and I guess you could actually say from December or to, uh, to, to uh, November, 
Um, where do you think we stand with getting into the Wuhan lab? Why has the WHO, why are they kowtowing to the, uh, to the Chinese Communist Party? You've had Pompeo and others say, we need to put together an international group that goes there and gets answers. Why have we not gotten the Chinese Communist Party to actually allow the top people in the world in there to review this? I don't have a clue. The, um, gotta get clo- you got to get closer to that mic. It's all about. This is the same problem. He didn't, hadn't learned anything in nine months. Same problem we <laughs> had at the beginning of the show. This scary, okay? Yeah. It's like, no, um, you'll have to ask the Chinese. It, it should well, be. Well, I know a, their answer is. Their answer is we don't need you over here. It, Just believe us. It is what it is, right? It should be a simple matter to come in. And the United States opened their laboratories. This shouldn't be an issue. But these P4 labs, isn't it by treaty? I mean, they're a, they're, a, they're a signator to the biological weapons treaty. Don't we have a right? And the French are supposed to oversee this. When this thing was built, isn't it some sort of condition pre- uh, precedent of their uh, activities in this that they have to make it open? Uh, and I realize, you know, you, you don't, you're like us, you don't think much of WHO, but don't they have an obligation to open these things up for inspection? You would think there's a moral obligation. What's well, the Chinese Communist Party? I don't care about moral obligations. No, no, that that's not going to. No. What I'm saying is, when there's a suspicion, um, wouldn't you want to clear your name and clear the institute's name? Of course. Yeah, but they don't. But the, the fact is, they you know they probably got you know gain of function all these type of experiments. So they're not a, a full opening. If you went in there today, they, they scrub immediately. They scrub the the fresh market. If you went in there today, if you, Dr. Hanfield, led a team with others, right, and got into Wuhan today, what would be your protocol? What would you go through? Who would you want to talk to? What would you want to see? What would you do? You mean an inspection? You no, s- go for dinner. Yes, an inspection. <laughs> you didn't get quicker. You did not get quicker <laughs> on your on – your, He's get, the yes. only guy who's been working this time. Yeah, yeah. There's a protocol you go through. And – you start months before the incident. You look at orders for materials and equipment. You look for visiting scientists in the logbooks. There's a procedure you can go through, and you're trying to gather information. It takes a while, and you need the right people doing it. People with a suspicious mind. And you need the records, though, right? I mean, and you need the records, and you need access to all the all the all the uh, scientists in the in the lab itself. Besides, the <laughs> you log? would do interviews with them. Now you would expect some wouldn't be there, so you would try to find them. Uh, Doctor Yan and others have said that this is man enhanced. I know initially when you heard about that, you were not a fan. Is there a possibility? that this is not 100% natural and that this is man-enhanced. I'm not saying it's part of a weapons program, but it's something that was in a gain-of-function experiment or something that got out. Do do you believe today it's potentially man-enhanced? Do I believe personally? No. And why is that? None of it makes sense. Is it a gain-of-function experiment that got loose? Again, I, I don't think there's definite evidence for that. But one thing I've learned in medicine, anything is possible. You can't. Never is never, never. Well, I mean, the one thing that kind of leads us to question this, Stephen, you said it yourself, right? If you wanted to clear your reputation, 
you would clear your reputation. And people are accusing them of having done some experiments. And we know, for example, these Chinese labs have been kind of, uh, as Dr. Yan had said, kind of a Pandora's box of experimentation that we're not allowed to do in the West because they don't have the same kind of oversight. We, we've done gain-of-function No, I'm saying we have, but we do it with much more oversight. I mean, you saw the yeah. shutdown of the lab in Wisconsin for yeah. some relatively minor uh, problems compared to what we've heard has come out of the Chinese labs. Yeah. But... What I'd like to talk to you hey, hey, oh, let, let's let's go to break and we're going to come back and, and let you two let you two go go at it. Okay, hashtag war on pandemic. Uh, want to go to the live stream? Want to hear your comments, observations? We're going to get more into politics in the next hour. We've got some uh, new federal state also protests around the world. We're going to go to Japan and Taiwan today. Uh, breaking news on uh, Nikki Lum Davis. I guess pr- pled guilty overnight. Uh, big breaking news on all the Miles Grow uh, situation. She she's uh, she's pled guilty. Uh, in that whole situation, trying to get him out of the United States. So a lot breaking, a lot breaking on the border of India, and uh, which we've been all over, Dave Ramaswamy and the team, the border of India, Chinese-occupied Tibet, and uh, China, the PLA, is, uh, and, and they've got an editorial in the Global Times that says, hey, India, we will crush you. So they're not, uh, you know, this thing gets closer to kinetic and away from economic and from information. And there's a lot on information. Peter Navarro is all over the place on shutting down these Chinese companies. We're going to turn with Dr. Stephen Hatfield on War Room Pandemic in a moment. War Room Pandemic with Stephen K. Bannon. The epidemic is a demon and we cannot let this demon hide. War Room Pandemic. Here's your host, Stephen K. Bannon. This is Jack Maxey sitting in the captain's chair here with Raheem Kassam, Stephen K. Bannon. We've got Vish Burra keeping us in line, and we've got Dr. Hatfield back in the studio. I know many of our fans have uh, have missed Dr. Hatfield. He's one of my... Uh, Wow, that was a Freudian slip there. Oh. He's one. Of, he's one of my uh, heroes here, and he was my wingman early on in this. So it's really happy to have him back. We've been uh, involved in a lot of discussions over the months, and he's kind of been giving me a heads up. And I, he was one of the early people to bring to my attention hydroxychloroquine as a potential early use against uh, COVID nineteen. So I'd like to go into that a little bit. For example, Dr. Hatfield, we've had Dr. Rish and Dr. Zelenko on the show, and both of them have said, and, and really it's a dramatic number when you think of the number of dead, both of them have said clearly that if we had begun a hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, zinc regime early on with the 75-year-old drug that really is quite safe in terms of its history of use, that we could have reduced deaths in the United States by anywhere between 70 and 80 percent. Is, is that a legitimate number in your mind? Yeah, Dr. that's quite legitimate. Um, it would have had to have been compounded with a, well, basically the national pandemic plan. It would be a community outreach. Um, look at India. Look at the slums around Mumbai. The population density. It was a disaster waiting to happen. By getting these community teens out, and some were going door to door, testing wasn't available, so you based it on the physician's discretion. 
provisional diagnosis based on that physician's experience. And then you gave him hydroxychloroquine, a very very quick five-day course. I think they ended up with 12 deaths per million. Well, I mean, when you think about it, what's frightening, I think India is about 45,000 deaths right now. Yeah. And Um, it's one point higher than that. Okay, I mean, I'm... but uh, it's a still a behind. fraction. But it's 50, maybe. It's know, a fraction of what the United States Exactly. Is. It's it's sort of like New York and New Jersey combined. <laughs> and we have the entire subcontinent of India. Also, what was interesting to me, Doctor, is we have these protocols around the world. You have the protocol in India. You have the protocol in some Latin American countries. And in Latin America, I say some. Because, for example, in Costa Rica, the Chinese communist doctors are in there telling them to use hydroxychloroquine. And then you have them in some other Latin American countries saying the absolute opposite. So we've seen this kind of twisting of science, and it's not just the Chinese communists. It's Lancet. You and I have spoken quite a bit about the JAMA article where they gave people potentially toxic dosages of hydroxychloroquine to make it seem as if it didn't work, as if the studies were designed in a preconceived fashion for failure. Have you ever seen that in in medicine in your... Nobody, nobody's seen what's been going on here. Uh, I mean, it's, it's frightening. frightening. It's, it's totally frightening. The peer review process is broken down. If you want to look, you know, Panama just announced that they're going back to hydroxychloroquine. They'd stopped it. They're now back on it. And they saw a spike as a result. They saw a spike Just as a like result. in Switzerland. Well, Switzerland was and absolutely France. dramatic. And France. And a number of other countries. About, if you look at a map, um, on which countries are using it. It's about almost two-thirds of the world. We're not. The United Kingdom's not. Canada's not. Yeah, God. So let me ask you one more question, because they've refused to give us an emergency use authorization for hydroxychloroquine on an early basis, which you yourself have said from day one, all the way back in, in February, when we first started talking about this, the idea that it had to be done immediately, you got to get ahead of the replication of the virus. Mm-hmm. I was shocked, doctor, on Friday to see that the FDA had provided an emergency use authorization, early use. Now, it's got to be for hospitalized patients because it's an intravenous drug, but for remdesivir and offering it all the way down to infants and pregnant women. Well, how did that happen? And we still see hydroxychloroquine as this evil drug. I mean, they think they have like 30% complications from people taking remdesivir for kidneys, liver, and other things. How is that possible? Um, when they pulled the EUA, the, the FDA pulled the EUA for hydroxychloroquine, that really left us nothing. Nothing. You can't use it in outpatients. Doctors are but they face investigation by their medical boards or pharmacy boards because the governors put all these restrictions on it. Now, the governors are learning their lesson, and one by one, this is being rescinded. I thought the guy from Minnesota was the most brazen. He said, now that we know the supply is secure for people oh, with lupus. What a, what a, a load of nonsense. There was a brief hiccup in supply. Some forward, very forward-thinking people in the administration moved quickly. There was about a 10-day little 
hiccup there, and then suddenly we had millions of doses. And what's crazy, we, we know from our colleagues in Brazil, we have millions of dosages that we've actually given to other countries, and we're still sitting on our extras, and those countries are distributing and using Brazil's, it and saving lives. Brazil's a very good point. Their political situation is very left-right, very much like here. And some states allowed it, and some states that were unfavorable to president uh, of Brazil banned it couldn't use it. When the hydroxychloroquine went in and the azithromycin and the zinc, in Para province, within four weeks, the whole thing was under control there. You know, this was the same thing. I sent you that article from Ecuador. Guayaquil was the city that they had on the front of the New York Times as the global example of disaster. They put in hydroxychloroquine across the city. They go to zero deaths in one month. Before Dr. Hatfield bounces, are we going to, it's no, where do we, on hydroxychloroquine, is it going to be uh, EAU on it or is it not going to happen? Uh, the request for a new a- EAU was turned down. Um, so it's not going to happen? Not um, the way it is now. Okay, we want to fa- thank Dr. Stephen Hatfield, the author of Three Seconds of Midnight. We'll get the cover of that book up in the next segment. I want to thank you. Just like the beginning of War Room. Got to get him up to the kind of the intensity that we put. So we're going to take a short commercial break. When we the return. Quiet Giant. The Quiet Giant. We're getting a lot to go through next hour, next episode.